boundary setting, holding emotional space, feeling unsafe, gaslighting, self-care. These are a few of my unfavorite overused therapeutic terms that I feel should be stricken from the English language, or at least banned from use in most metropolitan areas. Today we speak again with Mary Catherine McDonald, PhD, about the offending therapeutic terms in question, or as she likes to call it, access without education. The good doctor discusses the ways in which these terms and knowledge of psychology are misused by those who lack the education to, well, know what they're actually talking about. We also touch on how the pandemic may have spurred on this viral spread of therapy speak, as well as the roots of knowledge itself. How do we know what we know? When can you say, yes, I really have this thing? And apropos of nothing in particular, I discuss how much I hate the Myers-Briggs personality test. Thank you for listening. And remember, if you would like to become a Patreon member, see the link in the program notes. And why would you do such a thing, you ask? Well, to have your amazing questions about psychology answered on my special Q&A, to receive handy-dandy PDFs pertaining to your amazing question, and possibly, maybe, in the dead of night when no one is looking or listening, receive super-secret, untoward, unsettling, and downright slanderous recorded clips that may shake the very foundations of your reality. That's why. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What To Do. Today is the day that Thoreau died. Really? Yep. Today is the day that Thoreau died, ladies and gentlemen. You hear, you heard oh, it we're here recording. <laughs> you heard it here first on Look, Just Tell Me What To Do. It's, it's a bombshell announcement. <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of friendships that you have when you're an academic. You have friends who text you only about the days that certain other activists If I had a friend that did that, I would not, they'd not be my friend anymore. Why? Because like, don't spam me with useless information about dead poets. Well, no. So the background though, is that we collaborated on a paper and a conference about Thoreau and Emerson. Mm. And so we bonded over. So there's, Boring. there's a deeper significance. Boring. Anyway. Dull. And, <laughs> no care. Do you want to know what it says on Thoreau's headstone? Oh, God, what does it say? Now comes good sailing. Oh. That's sweet. Right? What a good writer he was. I know. Anyway. Um, tortured soul, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Never had a girlfriend, right? You know, I don't think so, actually. And didn't him and Virginia Woolf ex live at the same time? Excuse me, excuse me. Emily Dickinson. Oh, yeah, I think so. They, they both, like, never had sex. It's like, why didn't we get these two together? I know. Anyway, so. Here we are. Here we are. After a little bit of requisite banter. Yep. I'm here with Mary Catherine McDonald, PhD. That's me. And we are discussing. Access without education. What does that mean? See, this is kind of an offshoot of the last episode that we did on diagnostics. We talked about this, but not directly in that episode where you have tons of access to psychological stuff, to diagnostic codes. Anyone can buy the DSM. I've seen people have it like on their coffee table as a kind of a joke. You can Google your diagnosis, all this other stuff. There's a lot of therapy words and communication that's finding its way into society, into mm. everyday colloquial conversation. Mm -hmm. And there's a total complete lack of education to scaffold any of that access. Yeah. So we, we all started off when we read this fabulous article on people using therapeutic language to kind of bludgeon people like ill. Setting boundaries like as a way of really cutting someone off and being incredibly rude. Mm -hmm. This therapeutic language gives you the ability to be a shithead, mm -hmm. essentially, while totally. it's sounding like you're being kind of holier than thou. And I'm just setting a boundary and I'm, I'm practicing self-care. The reason I, I didn't come to your cocktail party or gala or missed your birthday or your wedding is because I was practicing self-care, not because I'm a goddamn flake. 
mm -hmm. and because I'm a lousy goddamn friend, but yeah. because I was practicing self-care yeah. and I was making space for myself. And I'm drawing a boundary and you and need to respect I, I've been, I'm just, I've been at capacity. Mm -hmm. oh. <laughs> how should we punish people like that? If you were queen of the world, how would you punish people who use those kinds of words? I would want to wave a magic wand and remove the words from their brain. Oh, that's so, that's way too nice. No, no, you have to be more draconian. More punitive. I'm not really that way is the thing. You've got to, yes, you are. I am. <laughs> you so are. Come on, dig deep, uh... MC. Because here's the thing. If you remove the language from their brain, they're going to want to use the language. They're going to reach for the language and they're going to be forced to say something more nuanced. But the thing is, is that people that use these kinds of words and really step into it are fundamentally terrible people. Well, yeah. <laughs> so what's going to happen is they're just going to create a new shtick of some kind. They need to be punished. They need to be jailed, banished. <laughs> or made to, you know, write a 10,000 page essay. Does this come up in your practice? Do you see this with clients? Using therapy speak? Yeah. No, I don't think patients like that stick to me. Yeah, same. Like I had a woman inquire about couples therapy the other day and I quoted her the cost and she's like, mm, that seems really steep. I think I'm gonna pass. I promise you she uses words like this. <laughs> I've had to actually refer clients out for this. Really? Tell yeah. me about that. There are clients that will come in. It's very clear that they've got some legitimate stuff that they're working on. And then they've picked up this language of boundary setting, self-care, uh, and abuse. And they use it against every single human being in their life. Oh, Jesus. You know, the, the Starbucks barista mispronounces their name and they're an abuser. Really? Yes. They'll actually say that. That is a literal example. I I've never heard anything like that. You know, friends of theirs will make a misstep as friends do in friendships. A friend will make them, will, will disappoint them somehow, right? Like they'll have a, an event that their friend wasn't able to attend or something. And and then that friend will be cut off via a series of, of what I call rage texts that are very similar to the ones in this article, which by the way, the author's name is Rebecca Fishbean. The article is called, Is Therapy Speak Making Us Selfish? The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> they use this kind of method against every single human in their lives and they start burning all of their bridges. And I'm not exaggerating. It's like family, partners, friends, and then kind of random acquaintances, co-workers. In, when I see that in a client, I have to say, first you kind of push back and you say, you know, it really sounds like you might want to pause and reflect before you make any more choices like this because you're burning down all of your relationships. Can we talk about that? Can we think about that? What are the implications? Are you sure you want to cut off your family? Of course, there are situations in which you have to, but it's important to take that decision seriously, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I'm met with, you're an abuser. Jesus Christ. You're gaslighting me. Wow. And it's like, okay, so now you've said that I'm gaslighting you. And so we can't possibly continue hmm. because you don't trust me. How do you terminate when you when you have someone you just don't like? There's a difference, I think, when, <laughs> when it's someone you don't like. In that situation, it's clear that I'm not going to be able to help them, right? Mm -hmm. When someone says to me, this has happened very rarely, by the way, this is like two mm -hmm. or three times, where if someone says to me, you know, you're unsafe or you're gaslighting me, I feel it's unethical for me to even try to continue that relationship with that client because mm -hmm. if they feel that I am abusing them, how is it possible that we stay in relationship together? And so I will say, okay, look, that's totally fair. Your assessment is- That you're abusing them. I won't accept that I'm abusing them. I'll say that your assessment is a valid statement of your feelings at this time. <laughs> I don't feel like we can continue in the relationship. And really interestingly, the only times I've done this, the person has pushed back really hard. 
and said, no, no, I want to stay. I want to stay. I want to stay. And I will say, I, I, be I believe that is a waste of your money to mm -hmm. continue coming to me when you clearly feel that way. Let's find you a clinician in your zip code who works on these things and who you're going to maybe feel more comfortable with. In my practice, I've seen this maybe two or three times over the course of 10 years, like mm -hmm. this tendency of people to lean into therapy speak and use that therapy speak as a weapon. One of the reasons that that is possible is because we have access to this language without the educational scaffolding to understand what that means. And so in our last episode, we talked about the DSM and how because anyone can Google PTSD and they the first thing that comes up is the DSM criteria, then people think they have this piece of psychological knowledge, but what they're missing missing is the entire historical scaffolding that brought us to that page. And right. then also all of the nuance and complication that, that can't be included in the single page about what it means to be diagnosed with something. And Can so, you give an example of that? One of the first kind of most obvious one that comes to mind is that there are three things that count in the DSM currently as potentially traumatic. People will come in and say, I don't have PTSD because I don't meet this particular criteria. Or someone will say, you know, I, I dated this person who is selfish and they're a narcissist because they <laughs> see that selfishness is one of the criteria under right. the entry for narcissistic personality disorder, which right. in and of itself does not make it. Very static thinking. Yeah. Black yeah. and white, very rigid. Yeah. Can you give an example of how the DSM has evolved and changed and how the diagnoses have kind of like morphed over the years? Yeah. So the DSM, I don't think people realize this, is in constant flux. It's not like a singular static thing where we have this, I think, what's the one in medicine? The Merck manual? Is that the thing? There's like a parallel in medicine where it's like, here are these diseases. And of course, there's new research coming out on many of those diseases, but what they are is relatively static, if I understand that correctly. And right. I'm not a doctor, a medical doctor. Well, because once a thing is a thing, it's a thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. It's like, okay, this is what the skin rash is. Right, exactly. This, this is what happens when a, a cockroach crawls over your foot. Right. Yeah, exactly. And especially if it's in Madagascar. Right. Yes, exactly. But here's this dog bite that I have that has this infection because of this bacteria. And it's like, it's pretty fixed. Yeah. And so we look at the DSM as if those things are always like that. But mm -hmm. the DSM gets actually revised every handful of years based on new empirical data and also advancements in technology. And so the advancements in particular, when it comes to brain imaging technology, which were not a thing at the beginning of the DSM, have really changed the way that we diagnose. But there's also like all of the institutional fuckery when it comes to changing something in the DSM. So for example, CPTSD, which I see absolutely everywhere all the time, people 100% do not understand what it means, mm -hmm. is not in the DSM. What is that? What is it? Complex PTSD. How is it different from regular PTSD? Um, so the classic definition of PTSD is based on a simple trauma model where you have a singular traumatic event. So let's say you had a car accident or you got assaulted or you went to combat and had one kind of terrible situation happen. Mm -hmm. Complex PTSD is differentiated from simple PTSD in that it's trauma that unfolds over a period of time. And so that could be your if you have neglect in your childhood or if you had mm -hmm. an abusive relationship that lasted for four years or multiple deployments in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars mm -hmm. that lasted over nine years, you know? Sure. And that also applies to what's a spectrum disorder, right? 
Yeah. Like antisocial personality disorder, yep. that shit keeps changing, doesn't yeah. it? Oh, totally. All of it does. So it's fluid because it's, it's not measurable in, the, in a physical way. Yeah. It's fluid because it's, is it just essentially a bunch of people in a room saying, well, this is the behaviors that we're seeing? Yeah. And then arguing about what that then means to change the entry in the book. Right. So I actually got to go to some of the APA meetings before they came out with the DSM-5 for PTSD. There were a couple of things that were being considered when it came to changing that entry. And one of them is that science has overwhelmingly shown us that the trauma response actually isn't a disorder, it's an injury. And so people want to change it to PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury. Oh, interesting. There was a really beautiful sort of side of the conversation arguing why that's important and how that would reduce stigma and help us understand and treat this more effectively. But then there's the other side, which says that injury is too vague a word. It's not specific enough to understand. You can't trace the injury in the brain. How does it relate to traumatic brain injury? How does it not? It's too fuzzy. And that side won. It's changing because of the new research and also the new technology, but it's also changing or not changing because of the institution that is the APA. And like all institutions is problematic and flawed. Yeah, we don't, I feel like schizophrenia and and PTSD and like autism and all these things are so, there's so little Mm -hmm. that we can see. Oh, totally. Like we don't know what causes it. Also, the symptoms change in time yeah, and they, sure do. they change like depending it's on what society you're in. It's entertaining to watch the, yeah. that community try to pinpoint, pff, pinpoint it and mm-hmm. say, this is the thing and put it in a box. Yeah. And like, oh, we saw this new behavior. Oh, it's time to create a new category. And it's like the nature of those conditions is that they are constantly in flux. And yep. it's funny to watch. But at the same time, as clinicians, you know, we know that that's the case. Mm-hmm. And so like, I don't throw around diagnoses lightly with a patient. Like if a patient asks me, oh, if I got this diagnosis and it's like, well, we can talk about it, but it would like somebody with a personality disorder, like narcissism or borderline, like they're really careful about diagnosing somebody oh, yeah, like that. Yeah, it yeah. takes years yeah. to say, okay, this is, you have this thing, yeah. right? And you can't be diagnosed until you're over the age of 18. That's right. Yeah. And that care is important. That mm-hmm. care is a good thing. Right. But we, in society, there's this, like, when we have access without education, the words and the languages trickle down into regular speech without the meaning. Mm -hmm. So then we end up just weaponizing these words. It's under the guise of being expansive and in tune, but it's the total opposite. People think that if they take a little course from someone who charges them $200 on Instagram to take a course that was called narcissistic, whatever the hell, that they then are experts in narcissism. And it's like, even the experts on narcissism will be less bold. Well, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. All over everywhere. Seymour used to call it the delusion of mastery. Yes. We talked about that last time. I love that. Yeah. People love to sound like they know a thing. Yeah. Or they have a thing. Why do you suppose that is? It's empowering. It's very easy to then blame things on this thing that you have or that you are. Power to do what though? Power over your symptoms, power over other people, tyranny in your relationships. That's the most destructive thing that I see. Yeah. And it literally, I've seen this happen in more than one couple, will tear a relationship apart. Tell me what you've seen. When someone weaponizes therapy speech, flings it, not in the name of expansion and understanding and attunement, but in an effort to manipulate and control. And I don't think that's even necessarily conscious. In fact, it's probably not conscious. Could you sort of create a scenario where that might be the case? Like paint us a picture of what that might look like? Do you watch couples therapy on Showtime? No, of course not. It's so good. I can't. No, I don't want to. I know. You don't want to spend your time in your free time doing doing work. work. 
But the therapist is a researcher, an academic. She's a depth psychologist. She's studied dissociation for her entire career. She's really well established and she does a great job. And there's a couple on the show in this most recent season. I think it's Christy and Brock. They both grew up in a fundamentalist church Mm -hmm. and Christy felt very stifled by the patriarchy. And so in her departure from the church, kind of grabbed a bunch of language about feeling safe, Mm -hmm. gaslighting, abuse, all of that was very real and was happening to her. And then she used it in her marriage to have tyranny over the relationship and create a situation where she was able to do whatever she wanted and her husband was not allowed to do anything at all. And anytime he pushed back against that, she would say, I'm feeling unsafe. This conversation doesn't honor me. Mm -hmm. You represent the patriarchy that I've fought so hard to get and she would not budge or compromise on any single thing. Wow. And one of the situations that, just to kind of add more color to this, they were trying to figure out whether to open their marriage. He said, I think I might be open to that, but there's this one person that I would absolutely not be okay with you sleeping with. And she took that request as the patriarchy trying to oppress her and then slept with that person. Jesus. And then when he in therapy is trying to process his grief, which he's done a lot of work to try to process, she shuts him down at every moment and says that she is glad she did this. It was healing for her. He can't have dominion over her. Like, it's really corrosive. That's really outrageous behavior. Yeah. And I've seen not quite so extreme, but similar shades in couples who I've seen. I have this feeling when it happens of wanting to like, it's like, you know, when you have, there's like a kid who's like playing with a toy that is dangerous or that Mm -hmm. has small pieces that it might choke on. And you're like, all right, I can't make a big scene and grab this toy from this child because then they're going to have a fit. So I need to like coax that toy out of their hand and replace it with something else. I have that feeling of we cannot use the term gaslighting when you're part every time your partner is asking for an accommodation. Jesus Christ, that's scary. It is scary. It's really corrosive. I think it's really dangerous and we need to we need to nip it in the bud. It's like you're handing somebody with very little training, like a, a here's a gun and here's a you know, machete and it's like they're much more powerful than people are aware yeah, of. Right. right. And yeah. so people like that. So what do you suppose is going on in our world that mm-hmm. we have not trained our humans <laughs> to know how to set boundaries and do all these things without relying on this shit to do it for them and do it? To, to overdo it? That's a great question. I think that there's probably 20 different factors. The kind of two that I see most obviously, and this is just given my kind of purview, are number one, I think we're in pain and we've been living through an incredibly traumatic time of upheaval. And I use that word in particular on purpose very carefully. And we haven't processed it at all. You're talking about the pandemic. Yeah. I think we entered into the pandemic with a severe lack of healthy coping strategies as a culture. And we are also a grief phobic society. And so that is just a disaster. And it was it happened on such a large scale that I think we're going to be feeling the reverberations of that for a long time. I think they're almost entirely unconscious at this point. We haven't brought it out into discussion. The trauma from the pandemic yeah. is, is still is lurking. 100%. Oh. And the second thing, just really quickly, and we can circle mm-hmm. back, is 
I don't think we value critical thinking anymore as a culture. And so whenever we feel uncomfortable, the easiest, quickest fix is to find a label to slap on something or to find a box to shove somebody in. Right. Well, make ourselves the authority. Right. I mean, there's so much attack against, you know, oh, you're a PhD, so what? Or you're a doctor, so what? Fuck you. You know, you just Oh, I got a hilarious blowback on on TikTok, TwikTok. TwikTok? Let's hear it. (laughs) The TikTube. (laughs) What happened? I started getting these really nasty DMs about people who felt like they had like uncovered me because they found out that my degree was in a philosophy department. So I have an interdisciplinary PhD. When you have an interdisciplinary PhD, you have to be housed in a particular department. And my background was in philosophy because Mm -hmm. I did philosophy and psychoanalysis at the new school, which was also very odd, right? There's not another program that does that, I don't think in the US. Mm -hmm. So I was housed in a philosophy department and I did philosophy, neuroscience, and psychology. Because at that time, you there was no such thing as like a department where you could get an interdisciplinary PT, you know, PTSD. That's mm-hmm. a funny Freudian slip. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't get an interdisciplinary PhD. There might be now. I'm not up mm-hmm. on it. And so people will sometimes find that out, you know, that I was housed in a philosophy department, which is not a secret. It's on my website. It's on my CV. It's on my LinkedIn. It's like, if I was going to try to hide something, I think I might do a better job. And they will say like, you're a sham. We've found out. You have no business talking about trauma. This is from your TikTok account. TikTok, yeah. Yeah, where you were talking about trauma. And yeah, right, right. You and your trauma llamas. My trauma llamas, yeah. Oh my God. You just <laughs> this like happy music comes on hi trauma llamas and it's like trauma llama <laughs> it's a dark thing and you're like trauma llama trauma happy llama. music anyway go on that's so why people, they call me dr sunshine because i bring i bring the light to the darkness i guess people just call me dr darkness like there's darkness i'm like ooh, let's put more darkness in here let's add the dark- let's, let's get this i got this dark lamp basically a, a lampshade with a brick in it <laughs> That's a great faux business idea. You should make a TikTok about that. I should. Here's my dark lamp <laughs> to add darkness to your light. I, I tend to go down the dark path. Like, um, yeah. So my neighbors, apparently there's this window that's right across from my window. Okay. It's an apartment complex. It's not across the street. It's like across a courtyard courtyard thing. And this couple moved in and it's really easy to see them through my window. Okay. Like it's like they are there Yeah. and it's a large window. And I'm like, oh gosh, I can see them. And like one night I saw the, one of them bouncing around without a t-shirt on and I'm like, oh shit, that I'm not supposed to see that, but okay. One of them. One of them, won't say which. <laughs> and a couple nights ago, I see this piece of paper taped to their glass. I'm like, what the fuck is that? Oh, and the no. curtains were closed. Is that some weird note to me? Did I, do they see, they, they think I'm peeking? And I was all worried about it. And I get up the next morning and it says, it says, dear Maria, Oh, dear Maria, Um, we closed the curtain so you don't have to watch us sleeping. Here's a picture of us instead. And there was two stick figures on And it's like somebody named Maria, I guess somewhere around here. Anyway, so what I was thinking of doing, because I like the darkness, as I was thinking of putting up a sign on my window that says, who's Maria? I have to know. You should. I now have to know. And now I really want to know who the fuck Maria is. Let's find out. Because I need this darkness in my life. Peace and quiet, sunshine, virility? No. How did they know that Maria was watching them in their sleep? I have no fucking clue. I'll sh- give you a tour of the yeah. place outside. Okay. It's like it's not clear who, where, who, anyone. Like the, the, the most likely candidate would be me. Maybe they think your name is Maria. Maybe they do. <laughs> Am I Maria? You look a little like a Maria. A very Jewish, surly, <laughs> middle-aged, used up, over the hill Maria. Oh my God. <laughs> Your inner monologue needs work. <laughs> oh, my inner monologue is perfect. Anyway, um, I'm curious about recovering from the pandemic. 
Yeah. Because I am seeing more patients in my practice now who, teenagers as well, who just lost a lot during the pandemic. For sure. Social skills, health stuff, weight gain. Years of their lives, like milestones that they should have been able to, or that they thought they were going to have access to. Can you speak on that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because there was a moment during the pandemic when Bessel van der Kolk, who is kind of a god in the field of trauma studies, came out, and I think he was quoted out of context, but said that the pandemic was not traumatic and it didn't count as trauma. And I think what he meant was that not everyone is going to have PTSD afterwards, because of course, that's not even true in a given, Mm -hmm. in something that we all agree, like a terrorist attack. We all agree that that's traumatic. 80% of the people come out of that experience without PTSD. 20% of the people come out with PTSD. So people took that up as like, oh, the pandemic's not traumatic. I don't need to worry about it. And I think we have not begun to get our head around the fact that number one, what we were dealing with was happening on the global scale. Mm -hmm. That's unprecedented in our lifetimes. Nothing has happened on a global scale in that way. So there's no escaping it. There was this sense of trapped that Mm -hmm. was true, even if you didn't believe that the pandemic was real, because there was nowhere you could go to get away from it, even conceptually. And then two, there's all these losses and these experiences that people had, whether it's teens that lost years their life or milestones, their prom, their graduation, things like that, or people who lost family members, we are bad as a culture at helping people go through those losses. And so what starts out as potentially traumatic becomes lasting trauma because we don't provide a relational home for it. And so how do we begin to process that? Number one, I think we need to accept that that's the case. Two, Mm -hmm. the pandemic isn't even over. And so we have to now kind of come to grips with the fact that, yes, we are no longer living in that acute moment of lockdown, but the world has changed in a way that it's not going to recover from. You've seen the leftovers? No. So Showtime series, I think. It's about 2% of the population just disappears from the earth. Oh, wow. And the whole show is about the trauma that the planet is incurring. This was made like five or six years ago. Oh, damn, that's creepy. Yeah. It's based on an even older book. But see that even the movie is able to accept that that's, you know, on premise, that is going to be a traumatic event. I feel like American culture is very good at cruising Mm -hmm. or cruise control. Yeah. And I think that Americans do that a lot where we kind of get in a a groove and Mm -hmm. everything's going to be fine. And totally. And also like ostriching where it's like, this is not happening. This is not happening. This is not happening. And you're like, just because your head is in the sand doesn't mean that this isn't happening above the earth, you know? Yeah. So I think what happens is that there's a real lack of sophistication where people believe there is sophistication. Yeah, totally. Because they think, oh, I'm good at my job. I'm good at this. I'm good at that. And they think that because they have a grip in this area over here that they've got a grip. Totally. I mean, you even see that in medical stuff. I mean, all that vaccine shit in the... Oh, um, completely. I mean, even if you listen, if you really want to really brazen example, just listen to a bunch of flat earthers talk. Mm -hmm. They're amazing. Because they're they're actually really articulate most Mm -hmm. of the time. Mm -hmm. Really smart people. Yeah. But they're such a deficit in their minds because they fucking think the earth is flat it's like they're trying to compensate by Mm -hmm. cobbling together all these weird theories Mm -hmm. and about nasa and that the airlines are all in on it too yeah it's like they got a whole really complicated system that's actually really well thought out yeah 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 right right (laughs) and it's in the name of like expansion but what it's actually doing is reducing so the, but that goes back to this idea of like critical thinking. We don't think critically anymore. And so rather than reflect and say, hey, I'm noticing that all of my friends are really needy and I'm feeling really depleted. How can I draw some better boundaries? Mm-hmm. And, and what role do I have in those dynamics? Instead of doing that, we say, you're an abuser. I'm going to draw a boundary. And then you burn the bridge. Mm-hmm. 
And that's so immature and short-sighted and not reflective. And the thing that I worry about with people that are doing that is that you don't ever stop to look at your role. So you don't ever actually improve when it comes to boundary setting. You're calling it an improvement in boundary setting, but what you're doing is burning bridges. And again, this is so tricky to talk about because there are people who need to get better at at drawing boundaries and they are reflective and they're using the same kind of therapy speak, but not in this weaponized way. Mm -hmm. That's not who we're talking about. Yeah. Do you think there's any pros to people having therapy knowledge without the educational scaffolding? <laughs> well, it's a good question. I think it allows it allows people not to keep things bottled up quite so much. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to go back to the cons, but the fact that it's always been bottled up means that when it comes out, it's going to be pretty crude and pretty messy. And yeah. everyone thinks it isn't when it is. Yeah. A, a cooler analogy would be if I'm at a party or something and I let it slip that I'm a therapist, which is always a mistake. Mm-hmm. I never get rewarded for that in a what good do you, way. What do you say instead? I don't know. I just, I, I like, oh, you're product manager. Awesome. Right. Tell me about that. <laughs> I kind of say it in a super quick way. Like, yeah, I'm a therapist. Talk therapy, you know, like, da, da, da. I'll, yeah. like, I'll collect this with my hands. I'm a talk therapist. Oh, you know, Woody Allen, you know, Woody Allen. <laughs> but they'll start talking about their dreams in front mm-hmm. of me. And talking about a dream in front of me is like taking your clothes off and drinking off in front of me. Yeah. It's like, so I'm not to say that my patients are doing that, but no. I'm saying that if, if we don't have this kind of yeah. relationship, just to kind of do that is yeah. insane and obscene yeah. to me. My you know, father was a dentist and it would be the same kind of thing. You'd be like, I'm a dentist. Mouth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People would open their mouths and be like, can yeah, you look at yeah. And you're like, dude, I'm at dinner with my family. Like, I do not want to look at your disgusting teeth right now is so not appropriate you have not hired me if you were my patient of course right 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 so more pros so yeah people are able to express their feelings more i think men have more of an avenue of expressing their emotions which is good but are they expressing or are they hiding behind weaponized language i think it's a mix i mean i think you and i are are like railing against this stuff because it's so repulsive but i think that not everybody misuses it it's true just look just just the fact that therapy itself is becoming normalized yeah means yes the the, the whole the whole that's one of the pros that that, like going to a therapist and actually talking to professional is more acceptable right Um, you can say it to your friends and family for the most part and you're not going to be judged Mm -hmm. yeah well not well you will but (laughs) not universally yeah this goes along the same lines as what you were just saying but i think like people are becoming more aware of their inner state or that an inner state exists right this is what i realized is the problem with extroversion i used to have all these theories and i've realized really what it is the problem with extroversion is the extroverted universe is finite Mm -hmm. there's only so many dollars that will make you happy there's only there's a limited number of you know couches that you can stick in your apartment there's a limited Mm -hmm. number of places that you can visit yeah extroversion is finite introversion is infinite it's it, it goes on forever it's an, yeah. it's a, and i think that people are being very very surprised to find this whole other resource that's yeah. actually much larger right than the whole inner landscape yeah yeah and just to clarify you mean introversion extroversion and the Jungian, not the myers-briggs way and they're not so dissimilar are they i think the myers-briggs research has gone in a really different direction i don't know my my understanding of extroversion is that you put primary importance on things in the physical realm and Mm -hmm. introversion is you put primary importance on things that are in the inner realm the myers-briggs frame i think is similar but it's the idea that you get energy from the outside world versus energy from the inside world. well that's not dissimilar in the sense that you put primary importance on things in the outside world well obviously that gives you energy but i think there's like a depth to the Jungian frame that isn't well, the problem with Myers-Briggs, and I go off on a thing here, is that it's it's too, you know, Seymour used to say that 
precision and clarity are complementary yeah, opposites. Yeah, you so talked about this last time. And then as you become yeah. more precise, you get less clarity. Yeah. So you pull back and see the big picture, you lose precision. Yeah. So Myers Briggs is too precise to be useful. Yeah. It's just you, you can't talk about shit like that in a way that is super measured and make any sense. Totally. Like I mean, the, the whole Myers Briggs has the judgment versus perception shit in it. I don't even know what the fuck that means. <laughs> and in my opinion, you can't separate judgment and perception. If you see a thing, you're judging it. If you judge it, you see it. Yeah. It's like so it's just they're trying to concretize and sort of is scientize a word <laughs> it should be <laughs> and scientize scientism is a word make it into a science it's it's not a science psychology it's a soft science yeah it's an art form yeah. it's it's a philosophy it's an yeah. expression of self it's yeah. not a fucking a cockroach in madagascar yeah. on your foot it's just not aristotle said that if we we cannot expect the kind of precision from the pursuit of happiness that we do from mathematics it's just ridiculous yeah. he said it's absurd to do that yeah and math is also a closed completely closed System, exactly yeah you know? but i think when you say introvert extrovert i think people go to the myers Briggs. well they're they shouldn't because <laughs> it's dumb well it's reductive it's so reductive it's reductive and but it doesn't know it's reductive no it, it doesn't it's it, 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 just super dangerous it thinks it's the shit because it has all these little researches attached to it and this is the thing and this is this thing over there and it's like oh fuck off mm-hmm. so people are, are seeing this new world mm-hmm. you know and i think the way that they previously saw that world is with drugs and alcohol yeah not knowing it of course but right. like if you're in a situation and suddenly you blow some powder up your nose and you feel amazing mm-hmm. you're just like oh my god there's i can change how i am in how the world. i am in the world mm-hmm. people spend so much time trying to make themselves happy with you know material things mm-hmm. and activities and such and then the reason i think drugs are so powerful was sort of an instant oh my goodness it's, it's all been here the whole time mm-hmm. and it is there but you just mm-hmm. don't do it that way yeah so i think we're discovering ourselves that's good i think it's also humanizing people it's, it's easy to be a racist bigoted shithead mm-hmm. okay yeah with language like this it's not as easy yeah because that language is pretty neutral across mm-hmm. everything yeah and it's just like every person is a person yeah and there's an implication in that that i think is healthy yeah to, yeah to a degree yeah that's a great um, point i don't know what, how, what do you think what are some pros i think that you know when we go internal more often and get get more used to that horizon and know it better we are possibly more likely to become better in relationship right the thing that i worry to go immediately back to the con <laughs> is that there's then this tendency to pretend that the inner landscape is this pristine perfect place and the outer landscape when it comes to other people is flawed and so for example if your friends are really needy and you're feeling like you need to draw a boundary that's a simple story that has a complicated structure underneath it that involves you mm-hmm. and so i think there's this tendency to be like all of my friends don't understand boundaries i understand boundaries mm-hmm. my inner world is pristine and perfect i have no role in this and i'm going to burn all these bridges and say i'm drawing a boundary here and i think in that case you're kind of missing a lot of depth there that could be really helpful for your growth i don't mean to just be judgmental i mean like it's sad when people are using this language a lot of the time because they're not seeing themselves no what what's behind the fact that all of your friendships are with needy people who never ask you how you are like (laughs) is that because you're hiding do you feel like you can't be vulnerable where does that come from in your background is there anyone in the world that you do feel like you can ask for help from Mm -hmm. you know like sure there's a lot there that's not just about how other people are wrong and you're right because you now have access to your inner landscape does that make sense (laughs) yes it does so here's a question for you Um, how about clinicians and people who are educated who are misusing this language 
The thing that I always notice, and I don't know if this is the same, Gabor Mate is actually a huge offender of this, is folks who are so reductive in their language that it's almost ridiculous. Say more. So there are two things that Gabor Mate says very often that piss me off a lot. Mm-hmm. One is that there's no such thing as ADHD. It's all trauma. And number two is that if you have cancer or disease later in life, it's because you have been angry and you haven't dealt with your anger appropriately. Jesus Christ. Right. This is, by the way, speaking of expertise, Gabor Mate is brilliant. He has amazing work. I love a lot of the stuff that he's doing. I'm not trying to slam yeah, he's him. A psych- he's a regular psychologist, right? He's a physician who right. has no psychiatric background at all. He's worked in the space of addiction and he's done incredible work. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to like, trash him or cancel him. But I think when we look at someone's expertise, we have to contextualize what it actually is. And he is reductive. And this is just his way. It's very provocative. But I've like seen him say to people who have cancer that the reason they have cancer is because they're angry. Yeah, that's lame. It's lame. And like, here's the thing. It's possible that a lot of ADHD is misdiagnosed trauma. And it's possible that anger is a contributing factor to inflammation in your body that leads to cancer. But to make that point so reductively mm-hmm. is corrosive and harmful. Yeah. And it also sounds like, hey, look at me. I've got this cool thing I'm going to say. Yeah. It's dick swinging. Yeah. I find that in my early career, a mistake that I would make was that I would mention diagnosis, just the spec, bring up the specter of it in session way too early. In oh, yeah. Before you even had any idea. Before, not not only that, but just bringing up the subject of it, just talking about it, I think is a bad idea early on. Well, how so? How would that come up? Because um, don't you have to give someone a diagnosis for insurance? I mean, I would, I would, well, yes, but I, I mean, like in session, it would come up, like, yeah, you know, some of these, so some of these things you're exhibiting are, you know, reminiscent, reminiscent of this, this diagnosis oh, and this diagnosis and that diagnosis, and I think part of it was me either feeling insecure about myself as a clinician, like, hey, I've got to show them that I actually know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And or just wanting to look good. I don't know. Or wanting to be like, here's what I see. Yeah. But anyway, I was I was being too hasty with that and they would, you know, cause a lot of anxiety. Um if you've ever watched two therapists have a conversation, it's really pretty fucking funny. <laughs> it's like watching two priests talk. It's just like they're just so fucking careful with each other. Yeah. Like, hey, I want to set a boundary on something. Oh, really? Okay, well let's make space for that. And, yeah. And they're like <laughs> It's incredible to watch, you know, but they are doing themselves a disservice because they're not being authentic. So you do see therapists talk using this, yeah, this but, therapy speak. But with each other and with, you know, their friends and whatnot. I think they're in a way they're the worst offenders because they know the most about that shit. And how problematic the language you, is. And you see and... it on fucking Facebook, you know, I oh, see wow. like therapists post shit on Facebook with like something that quote unquote triggered them. Like that word trigger that's so, that pisses you off so yeah, much that yeah. people misuse it, right? Yeah, yep. So it'll be like someone posts like something in a therapy forum and then someone's like trigger warning, that kind of thing? That kind of shit. Or they'll say, well, I'm a clinician and you, you know you can't say this and this is what this is what's real because i have this degree you know and it's like fuck you it's it's all ego like you know and then the question because you said access without education is the question is what's what is sufficient education so well what what does it take to get a therapy license right yeah it takes you know going to school and getting the degree which is not incredibly difficult no it's just not the hard part is the hours Mm -hmm. and the exam Mm -hmm. the hours you could get what if you have a shitty supervisor what if you're working Mm -hmm. with a super easy population yeah that doesn't really challenge 
challenge you. Yeah. And then you have to take an exam, mm-hmm. which is just a bunch of law and ethics, basically, mm-hmm. right? Which is good. Yeah. I'm glad we do that. Yeah. But it, what does it mean to be educated? What does it mean to be like every time I look at you, I forget that your PhD is in philosophy. Yeah. You strike me as a psychologist. Mm-hmm. You just mm-hmm. feel like one. Right. I can't explain what that is. Yeah. I defer to your judgment on things because I feel like you are. There's just an energy that people oh, have when you. they know what the fuck they're doing. You can taste it, right? And that is dangerous because like, well, you're giving people authority where they don't deserve it and stuff. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. super subjective because people do that with people who really don't know what they're talking about. They like idolize people. Yeah. But I'm in this funny position where I feel like I know. Yeah. But I can't prove that I... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing. Like when you know you know a thing, but you know that if you went and yapped about it, you'd look like an idiot. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I think part of the the answer then is to to say that. I guess. I mean, know the the wise man analogy. I've used this one before. Um, so someone goes to the wise man and says, "Hey, are you the wise man?" And he says, "Well, if I told you I was a wise man, I wouldn't be very wise now, would I? Right. But if I told you I wasn't, I'd be a liar, right?" And so what the fuck? <laughs> right. Anyway, so I think there is a certain degree of knowingness yeah. or education that exists within some clinicians and not others. Quite oh, frankly. a thousand percent. I don't even know what it is. Okay, so if the issue is access without education, what does it mean to have education? I think it depends on who you are, yeah. right? And to go back actually to philosophy, I think a lot of people don't realize that when you're in a field in philosophy, you have to pick a specialization. And the specialization that I picked was the philosophy of psychology. Uh-huh. And so the philosophy of psychology, the whole of my degree and all of my research was about looking critically at the field of psychology, mm-hmm. which is why I think I come off as a psychologist because I didn't do a lot of philosophy, philosophy. I did a lot of philosophy of psychology. It's a whole field. But I think that philosophy education has that is missing from a lot of the world, especially in the United States, is critical thinking. It's a critical disposition. And I don't mean critical like I'm going to be a skeptical asshole, like a like a philosophy 101 student who just sees how to pull things apart like Socrates. That's not actually very sophisticated. What I mean is like, can I take in this information, pause, figure out what pieces I don't have and figure out how to get them. And that's going to look different based on who you are and what your context is. And so mm-hmm. if you're someone on TikTok who doesn't have access to education, which is true of much of the country, I don't think that means you you, you get let off the hook from, from being educated. Because if you have access to TikTok, you have access to the internet. If you have access to the internet, you have access to information. Mm-hmm. And I think it is our responsibility as citizens to figure out what the truth is in any given thing that we are exploring. And so there are resources now that we're not available 10 or 20 years ago that are available to almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone, Mm -hmm. that mean that you could think critically about what you're seeing, what you're taking in, and figure out what the context of that is. Most research papers are now open access, which is wonderful. Uh, This is kind of a random example, but I saw a funny TikTok this morning about (laughs) Uh, a guy ranting about how they were grilling the uh, CEO of TikTok. Oh, yeah. yeah. Spy stuff. Yeah. And he was like, you know, recently we had a bunch of secrets released on fucking Discord uh, by a 21-year-old IT guy who had access, who just wanted to prove a point to somebody to, to dick swing so, yeah. on the internet. Yep. And you guys are worried about TikTok. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> what in the actual... <laughs> Talk about like lack of education, lack right. of thinking critically, lack of like... Right. Seymour always said it was really difficult to think in a straight line. It's, it is. And you have to keep yourself on task. I'm No, I want to do this in a straight line. What I does that mean? I think on a larger scale, I think... 
It's this is also an example of individualism running run amok. Yes, completely. Because we put the success of the individual above everything, which means that your opinion, your yeah. thing, you got to climb to the top mm-hmm. and shout as loud as possible. And if you can do that, you will be the winner. Yep. And I'm not saying I'm a socialist. I'm just saying that I think this shit's gone too far. Totally. And it's if you care about a thing, you should try to find out what it means. Well, I'll get even deeper. So Seymour, one of his favorite subjects was epistemology. Yes. Yeah, the subject of knowing. And he would always challenge me, like, how do you know when you know something? Yeah. And I think that's what our conversation is about today. Yes. How do you know when you have a thing? Yeah, and right. And say, this is mine. Like yep. the Myers-Briggs people, they think they have a thing. Mm-hmm. And they do not. Right. <laughs> they do not. And they've got PhDs and numbers and done studies and written books and are making yeah. lots of money and probably go to cocktail parties and uh, people ask them a bunch of questions and they feel like they're awesome and they don't know shit. And I know it. <laughs> you know it. How do you know that you God know that? Damn, I don't know. <laughs> But I goddamn know it, you know? Here's the thing, I think. I think what we do is we have a fragment of a thing and we say, oh, I have the whole. I understand human personality. I have these five types and this is the Myers-Briggs platform and that's all that we need. And I think this is a place I see therapists do this a lot. I have this one modality. This modality, EMDR works for everything. It's so true. I had a supervisor when I was a trainee who was really into this one fucking modality of testing, like that everything was a psychological test that people... Every time somebody opened their mouth, they were going to test you with something, which is true. I mean, it has, there's truth in it, but it's like Freud and his fucking death wish, kill your father, marry your mother shit. Like he just applied it to everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like people get a hold of one little fucking thing that might be real. Right. Because their minds are small. Right. They, <laughs> and they're uncomfortable and they want the reassurance of knowing that they have the thing. Instead, like it's yeah. not as satisfying or empowering to say like, oh, look, I found a fragment. Right. I want the whole thing. But it, it's always the more real thing to say, I have a fragment. Yeah. I kind of make a living off of saying, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's something you can actually train yourself to do. Like totally. when someone asks you a question, like actually, here's a thing. Here's a hope assignment for our listeners. <laughs> Practice saying, I don't know yep. to things more often. And say it in a way that doesn't invoke shame yeah because i remember back in the day like when i would have a strong opinion about something let's say political i was very quick to say this is the thing yeah and now that i like you know i don't actually know the whole thing right 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 and people really think they have the whole thing and they they'll have little bits of information and they'll use narrative and narrative story to yeah to loop together all the other let's say someone who's invariably paranoid yeah right? and they've got two friends that one tells them a half truth about something and another one is a complete misunderstanding and they yeah. take those two things together and they decide that all of their friends are conspiring against them and hate them and and they just create this whole story yeah you know you'd see that a lot in rehab yeah it's super come, common in general yeah. yeah i always tell clients in situations like that to interrogate their thoughts oh that's a good one because it's like what do you actually know not what is the conclusion that you think you know but what do you actually know well i have these two pieces of knowledge and it might mean that my friends are conspiring against me <laughs> it might also mean that i don't have all the information that's or correct. that there was some honest miscommunication or confusion when i interrogate the thought i actually find out that i don't know the terrible thing that i think that i know and i think it's also important that people create a dialogue with the story so yes. that you understand this is what i know and this is the story that i have about what i right. know and i need to look at both right and like and think about them in a way that works right and what might i be missing yeah what might i be missing why is it so hard to do that to set such an ego blow to do that man to interrogate your thoughts yeah because it gives you want to be right you but know? i think like when you as you going back to your point like if you practice it like that's something i had to get super comfortable with teaching because i don't know tons of shit right 
And if I tell my students that I know things I don't know, that's unethical. It's also yeah. harmful. So you, you, but you practice doing that. It, totally. It's not right. comfortable in the beginning, but now I'm like, oh, geez. I don't, and, and I get reflected back a lot of the time. People are like, oh my God, you're so comfortable saying I don't know. And it's like, well, because I don't know the thing. Yeah. Someone was talking to me about some things about neurobiology. I know very little about neurochemistry. Mm-hmm. And someone was asking me a neurochemistry question. And I said, I, I really, that's really outside my purview. Here's like the three things I know about neurochemistry, but I can talk about that in neurobiology and they were like oh my god you're so willing to admit that and it's like well what why wouldn't i what what is it going to bring shame to my family name if i say i don't know well, the entirety it's of- interesting well again if there's a problem in the culture and right. we were talking earlier about why is it that people reach for this language is because right. they're not comfortable saying that shit they're not comfortable saying yeah i don't know what the fuck i'm doing right or how to ask for it or i don't know but i here's what i think i might know yeah we need so- more nuance that's the thing. Just, I just we, did it we again. We need punishments. We need to punish people, punish people, <laughs> as I said earlier. We've come full circle. We, we need to start. You know, Foucault had a point in Discipline and Punished when he talked about how we need to be really careful because we think that we make societal progress because we take execution out from the public square and we now make it like a medical thing. But we're not making progress. Oh, wait, wait, what? Okay, random. You bring up fucking Foucault. You know, it's like it's in the gloves are coming off. Like uh, Foucault, she's gonna bring up Derrida next, and no. some other motherfuckers. Derrida, oh. man. You know, he actually taught at the New School right before I was there, and people called him Jacques, and I was like, I'm sorry, are you talking about Derrida? Like, are we calling him <laughs> Jacques? They actually called him Jacques. Yeah, that's fucking hilarious. I know. She just called him Jack. Jack. Yo, Jack. Hey, Jack. What's up? What's up? How's the postmodern doing? Is it, have you deconstructed everything yet? Yeah. No. Yeah. What was the question? Uh, I don't know. You were talking about Foucault. Oh, so Foucault makes this Discipline and Punish is one of of my favorite books just because I think it's such a fucking perfect argument. It's kind of a wide sweeping analysis of the ways in which we see discipline in our lives and the ways that discipline can transform and actually internalize and we become self-policing. And it starts out in school. Mm -hmm. We become docile bodies that are expected to behave a certain way for a certain amount of time, sit in a certain chair, do certain activities. And if you do anything other than that, you are, you know, deviant or whatever Mm -hmm. and in the very first chapter of discipline and punish he talks about how we think we've made progress with what we call discipline because we've sort of like anesthetized it and we used to draw and quarter people in the town square which is when you would literally attach people's limbs to four horses and have them run in opposite directions Mm -hmm. like and we would stone people in the town square and he says now we've relegated capital punishment to the basement of a prison where it's not public anymore it's very medical but that does not mean we have made progress. Oh, interesting. And I think living in the time of cancel culture, I think we can see that very clearly. Like we have, in ways he couldn't have possibly thought about, we have oh, become public. so much more cruel public, to people. It's a form of public execution. Oh, yeah. It's and a far me. more brutal one because you survive it. Yeah. I think I'd rather be canceled than drawn and quartered, but I hear your point. Well, do you know though, like that, like your you people's careers get entirely fucking ruined. Their yeah. families are destroyed, like because yeah. you know someone didn't like their face on a YouTube or whatever. It's yeah. just like yeah, they didn't use the right pronoun or some shit. Okay, anything else you want to add? The topic is access without education. I think we have access. I think we pretend we don't have education. And I'm not saying that the educational system is not flawed and problematic mm. and privileged, but I think we have more education than we think and we need to do a better job of thinking critically. I agree. All right, Mary Catherine McDonald, PhD in philosophy with a specialty in, um, what was it? Philosophy of psychology. Philosophy of psychology, yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's okay. 
Uh, PhD in philosophy. Okay, Mary Catherine McDonald. Okay, anyway, uh, that was all fucked up. I'm not going to add that. Okay. Thank you so much for coming. You were amazing as usual. Thank you. This is so fun. And we will do... Do we have a preview of what else we're going to be doing? Yes, we have um, two more in the works. um, Two more in this series. Mm -hmm. One is on personality disorders. Oh. So how the cluster B, and in particular how the cluster B sort of thing is being misused. And then one on psychopaths, sociopaths, and serial killers. Fun. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Again, if you would like to become a Patreon member, see the link in the program notes. And if you would like to be a guest on my show, ask a question or just say hi. My email address is benjaminrusick at gmail.com. Thank you so much and talk to you next time.